Alam Shah is a parent, teacher, science writer and filmmaker, and he has spent most of his professional life trying to share his passion for science and education with the public. His new book for children, Mr Shah's Marvellous Machines, Adventures in Making Round the Kitchen Table, is being published this July and is the highly anticipated sequel to Mr Shah's Recipes for Wonder. Alam joined Nicky Gamble in the reading corner to tell us more about inspiring young people in the marvels of machinery. I've read both of your books. I found them appealing, entertaining, informative. I desperately wanted to get into a classroom again and be experimenting with children. But one of the things that struck me to begin with was how much you are infused through the book, your kind of personality, where you've come from your interest in all of this. And I thought it'd be great to share some of that with listeners, your personal story. So tell us a little bit about you and how you came to have this interest. I'm really glad you noticed that because part of what motivated writing these books was that I wanted to appeal to people who weren't interested in science and adults and children who maybe found science off-putting and so forth, because I came from a background where I I took no interest in science until I was a teenager, until I met some really wonderful teachers who made me see science in a completely different way and feel that science was something someone like me from my background could could do. And and that was a life-changing experience, really. Um, There's a concept in science communication called science capital, which is used by researchers to look at the likelihood that young people grow up to be scientists or enjoy science or do well at science in school. And all it really means, it's a bit like cultural capital. It's whether or not when you're young, when you're a child, your parents might themselves be scientists or engineers or doctors, or whether they have a positive attitude towards science and maybe take you to a science museum or watch science documentaries with you. And if that's the case, then you're said to have high science capital. And that is actually statistically uh, predicts that you you might you should go on to do well in science and you might go on to have a career in science and if you don't have science capital then you're unlikely to do well in science and so forth so I come from a, a background of low science capital in that you know none of my parents were professionals in any career really and uh, we didn't talk about science at work and we certainly didn't watch science documentaries or do anything like that and yet you know science ultimately has become a central part of my life. It's given me a really fulfilling, satisfying, enriching career. And I I really feel strongly that science is as important as art and literature and music to us culturally. And it's unlike a lot of science communicators or science teachers, I don't believe that we should try and encourage everyone to grow up to be a scientist. Uh, What I think is that science should be accessible and, and the fruits of science be accessible and understood by all of us in the same way that we can all appreciate good music and good art and good literature. I, I believe that everyone should be given the tools with which to appreciate science. And so, you know, uh, the books do have this personal element because I want to say to people who don't engage with science, who don't like science, that look, I was like you, I come from a background which didn't value science, which didn't actually include much science at all. But it's not even about science. It's about curiosity and excitement about why things happen. It seems to me that you're opening that for families to explore together as well. There was a deliberate decision on my part to not 
have science in the main title of the first book. It was called Recipes for Wonder um, for, for that very reason, because what I wanted children to engage with is wonder. And again, like Marvelous and Marvel, wonder has two meanings, if you like. And so for me, the, the way I wanted to engage children with science is through natural phenomena which seem wondrous to them and which would encourage them to ask that simple question, how does that work? What's going on here? You know, and there's a whole section in, in the first book called The Power of I Don't Know, because I wanted to let parents know that it's totally OK to say I don't know when a child asks a question. But really, the, the, what you want to do is then follow that up with how can we find out? And I think that's a, a skill that is really easy to grasp and is useful for, not just for parents, but for teachers as well. I think really good teachers are, are the ones who are confident enough to say to their students, I don't know, but how can we find out? Mm. Now, it's it's great fun. And there's a little bit of seriousness uh, woven in there. I notice you probably get two of your favourite philosophers in. I noticed uh, Levi Strauss and Francis Bacon making an appearance. Tell me why why their thinking is important to you. I tried to steer clear of mentioning too many scientists and so forth, but I did want the readers to know that these are ideas and thoughts that we've been wrangling with throughout history. I wanted the the children reading the book to to, to kind of also have the intellectual excitement that. I think science delivers in, in quite a unique way. So you've got the wondrous natural phenomena or the machines that do something fun and exciting. But really, the, the, there's a the, there's a bonus, really, is that one, once you start thinking about these things, there's a joy to be had from the kind of intellectual aspect. And, and that's why there's a couple of philosophers thrown in there. And so there's a phrase I use in my teaching and in these books, which is, wanting children to be minds on as well as hands on mm -hmm. and I think it's really easy to get kids doing things and the, the challenge really is to is to get them thinking about what they're doing and questioning. The first book was Recipes for Wonder wasn't it which covers all the sciences I mean you've got biology in there the dissection of the daffodil you've got plenty of physics in there as well uh, I presume you've done all of these. <laughs> I have I mean the first book was um I mean, as I'm sure you know, in the in the world of children's books, you're kind of limited by this 32 page structure. But um, the first book was really an attempt to introduce young children to all of science. And so I did make a, a real attempt to include biology, physics and chemistry. And the book is structured in that way. And even in the first book, there are engineering activities, if you like, there's a catapult and, and there's a spectroscope, which is really exciting. Um, and, and some of the feedback I had from the first book was it was clear that people really loved the making activities because you kind of got something to take away at the end as well. And that prompted the idea for, for the sequel, Marvelous Machines, but also the fact that um, since writing the first book, I'd, I'd become a dad. And I, I did find myself being the kind of dad who, in a desperate attempt to entertain and keep his children kind of away from the television, just making stuff out of bits of cardboard and old loo roll. And I, it brought back memories of the kind of things that I learned how to make as a child. And what I'd found over the years working with students and other adults was that a lot of this knowledge isn't as widespread as, as you might think. And really simple things like there's a something called a paper popper in there. And it's, it's just a way of folding a piece of paper so that when you kind of 
throw it, it makes a, a really loud pop. And I'm just always surprised that not everybody knows how to make this or, or a paper helicopter, which is so simple to make. And children can be entertained with, you know, a cardboard box. It's the old cliche, but it, but it's true. And I feel one of the things I feel very strongly about is that when I was a child, at least you could kind of open up the toys and, and mess around with them, see how they work and so forth. And you really can't do that these days. And so Marvelous Machines was an attempt or is an attempt to say to parents, don't buy a brand new toy, you know, take a bit of cardboard and make one of these because actually it'll probably amuse your child for as long. It'll be cheaper and it'd be better for the world in general because you won't be contributing to yet another piece of plastic that's going to end up in landfill. Tell us that story about you taking the motor apart, the helicopter. I like that story a lot. <laughs> so I, it sounds like a sob story and I'm not telling it as a sob story because, you know, I... I'm a, I'm a published author. I'm a teacher. I lead an incredibly comfortable middle class life now. However, I was born in Bangladesh and um, I came here as a, as a young boy with my parents and we were poor immigrants. So we didn't have money for for shop bought toys, um, except on this one occasion. You know, I don't know what happened, but my mother must have had a spare couple of quid. And we went to the local market and she let me pick a toy from the toy store, which we always used to walk by and I picked out a, a bright yellow plastic helicopter I remember it clearly and it was battery operated and all it did was that the, the rotor blades went round and, and that was terribly exciting for, for me at the time uh, unfortunately uh, I, I broke it within a couple of hours that one of the blades snapped off and uh, I tried to fix the blades but uh, the glue didn't work and then I, I got very frustrated with the fact that I couldn't fix it and I ended up smashing the whole thing uh, but inside, I, I discovered it had an electric motor, like any toy that kind of does this sort of thing. There's a there's an electric motor inside, and I played with that and found out very quickly that the the batteries needed to be connected in a particular way to to make the motor go round. And I found that all so fascinating that I then decided to to look inside the motor itself and uh, somehow managed to to crack that open using a, a screwdriver or something and flinging it repeatedly against the wall. And to my delight, inside were magnets, and I'd never had magnets to play with before. And this beautiful copper wire that just yards and yards, or meters and meters, I should say, as a science teacher, of this very fine copper wire. And it was just such a beautiful, interesting object. And I was able to get inside it. And I'd, uh, if this was a different kind of story, I'd tell you that that's what prompted me to be a scientist. But unfortunately, this isn't a movie and that's not how things turned out, because actually how motors work is quite complicated. But um, I have always been interested in how things work. But, you know, unless you're some kind of genius, you don't work out how things work for yourself. You do have to have some kind of education mm -hmm. uh, and training. But um, I now know how to use make an electric motor. And if you read Recipes for Wonder, what is astonishing is that you, you can make your own electric motor at home with just a battery, a magnet and a piece of wire um, and a nail. I think I use in, in the version in Recipes for Wonder. But I do think that, that knowing how things work or, or trying to figure them out for yourself there is a joy in that and and that's what I'm trying to get parents to to help their children with and it's like anything you know if you're if you're never exposed to classical music you know how do you know that classical music can be the most beautiful music you've ever heard and if you're never exposed to great literature you you, you might never find that you love a particular type of writer or play or whatever and 
So, but as I said, coming back to this idea that I think science is like literature and music and art in that they are part of our cultural heritage, but unlike literature, music and art, science is less accessible because I think people feel that they need to have some deep knowledge of it or understand it themselves. And I, I'm trying through these books to help people see that you, you can you can find your way towards a scientific view of the world and towards appreciating the findings of science through quite simple activities and, and just quite simple questions. Mm. Let's get down to some of the detail. Tell us about some of the machines that people can make if they pick up your book. Okay, so I use machines in a, in a very uh, loose sense of the word. So uh, I am a physics teacher and I should, uh, for anyone listening, uh, explain that I, I uh, the technical definition of a machine is something that does work, uh, somehow makes life easier for us humans. But um, in my book, I, I, I've used the term machine to mean any device that generates wonder. So, and I think that's a useful thing to do. So I think my absolute favourite machine in the book is a rubber band powered car and the reason for that is it's a little bit challenging and fiddly to make so it's incredibly satisfying once you get it working and I think that's important this sense of satisfaction one gets from making things and I think the rubber band powered car really delivers on that and the other thing is it works exactly like the kind of shop bought pull back cars I've played with as a child and they're the cars that you put on the floor you pull them back and you release them and they go and what's better about this is not just that you've made it yourself but that you can see exactly what's going on how it works um, and see the engineering and you can go on to make it better and I'm really delighted to say I've already seen people posting on the internet of better versions of of the design that I've put in in the book another one that I absolutely love and one that I've used extensively in my teaching uh, is the balancing bird and and that's probably one of the easiest to make but you know if you're doing it with a young child it involves things like coloring in and cutting out and and believe it or not these are really useful skills for young children to develop but then when when you make the thing and you use it and um I don't think I can describe its sheer wondrousness well it's it's a bird that balance if you if you hold it by its beak it balances in a very disconcerting and apparently magical manner but you really have to try it yourself to see and I've not encountered a child and I've done it with I kid you not with hundreds of children I've not encountered a child who isn't utterly wowed by it so um, if you're listening you can you don't need to buy my book it's I'm giving away these activities on my website you can go to my website if you search for balancing bird the templates on there you need the template and a bit of old cereal box and two coins either 1p coins or 5p coins or 2p coins um, which you can have back and it's completely recyclable um, but yeah, that's the one I would recommend people go and try immediately because it's just so easy and and so kind of value for money, I would say, in terms of the effort you need to put in and, and the, the joy you get out of it. Definitely one that I'm going to try tonight. That was a very generous thing that you said there to listeners. But I want to invite them to go and get the book because there's an added value in as much as we've already said, they get something of you through that book. You're sort of a guide through. It's not just a set of instructions. And also, we have to say, what a wonderful production uh, job has been done, you know, with the 
illustrator Emily Robertson and also the the publisher Scribe, uh, Scribble is the children's imprint of that. They've done a really great job so that it's a thing of beauty as well as a how-to book. (laughs) Thank you so much for acknowledging that. I mean, the book itself is is a really beautiful object and I'm really proud to work with Scribble and with Emily Robertson, who I think completely brought a distinct look and feel to the books, along with the the designers at Scribe, who who did such a fantastic job of making these books, which you probably find in the Science for Children corner of a bookshop. But actually, I think they just look and feel different to to other books in that in in that area. Definitely. Uh, a couple more questions that I really wanted to get in. Uh, one is about health and safety. So I'm looking at the books that I had when I was a child, that Toys to Make and Do uh, book. And there are lots of things in there that, A, I wouldn't be able to find today because it was all about cotton reels and you can hardly get hold of a cotton reel unless you buy a ready-made plastic one, which sort of defeats the object. And there was a lot about hammering nails into things. Do you think we are a little bit obsessed with health and safety when it comes to giving children or equipping them with the tools to use? I think that there are good things to have come out of the health and safety movement in that I suspect there are fewer injuries that children uh, end up at A&E with. However, I do think risk and danger are good things for, for children to experience. It was difficult for me when writing these books in that I, what I didn't want to do was put children in danger if there were adults who didn't know what they were doing. Um, so I, th- I think that's a, a kind of fine line to tread. So the, the only activities in the book that I think are, are possibly dangerous are the ones involving electricity. So there's an electric motor and in the first book and an electromagnet in the second book. And both of them, if, if you weren't being careful and perhaps being actively stupid, you could hurt yourself because, you know, for example, short circuiting a battery um, will lead it to heat up very quickly. If you have a rechargeable battery, you, you can even risk explosions and so forth. But um, I, d- I do think, for example, we've got catapults and things in there. And, you know, you could go health and safety mad and, and say, oh, we mustn't include a catapult because somebody might get hit in the eye and so forth. So we, ha- we haven't gone that far. But I, d- I do think, you know, if parents start off being confident themselves in making and handling equipment and so forth, then health and safety is less of an issue. And lastly, I want to ask you, because a lot of our listeners will be teachers of one kind or another, and you've obviously got a background in teaching too. Do you think we have a good flight path, a good trajectory from the early years to, you know, the end of compulsory education and what we're trying to achieve through our science curriculum? Oh, that's a really good question. I think there's lots of research which shows that children really enjoy science at primary school. And then they stop enjoying it at secondary school. And so I think that's a problem. There are lots of people looking at whether the science curriculum we have is fit for purpose. And that's probably true of all subjects at school. I think the the world is changing rapidly, as is the way we teach and so forth. And I do think we might need to rethink what a science education needs to look like and what it's for. And I have written about this elsewhere, but I think for a long time, I think the general consensus for that science education is needed so that we can produce more scientists um, and there, there have been moves to reformulate science education so that it's for everyone really um, I'm not convinced that's been terribly successful and I, I do think we need to look at that again 
But I think, for example, at the moment, I teach the physics GCSE and A-levels. And my, my personal feeling is that I'm not convinced that the content of GCSE physics, for example, is appropriate or best for what our, our young people need or what we need from our population in terms of scientific literacy and so forth. In in brief, I, th- I think the science curriculum could be better and I suspect it will need to change sooner rather than later. Okay. Uh, I am going to squeeze in one more question. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> and that is during the lockdown periods that we've had over the past year, where obviously our teaching has had to adapt what has that meant for science teaching? Has it had some benefits, do you think? Oh, another really big question. I, th- I think a lot of science teachers would say that they've missed being in their labs. And, and really, one of the things that they've missed is being able to do practical work. And so, for example, I remember teaching a lesson on sound with a, with a year seven class. And uh, usually I would introduce that by showing them all sorts of things in class. And, and uh, you know, I really believe in the power of demonstrating physical phenomena for real. And, you know, I just found it doesn't work the same through a screen. And, and I think there are good reasons for that. So I think a lot of science teachers would agree that they've missed doing practical work. And it's not just for science teachers. I, th- I think a lot of times non-teachers and people who don't know much about education think that teaching is just about delivering information and you know of course you can do that through a screen but teaching is about so much more than that I think there's a, a huge pastoral element I think the way in which one can engage students in real life is significantly different to how how we can do it through screens and I think that difference has impacted far more on poor children and children from deprived and underprivileged backgrounds than it has on children at private schools for example there are children who who need to be in a classroom who need the what is found in a real physical classroom in terms of being surrounded by other children being in an environment which is safe um, and where a teacher can can give them the kind of attention that we simply can't do through a screen and I'm sad to say that I think for a huge swathe of children they, they have effectively missed out on you know over a year of of schooling because doing it through a screen hasn't really worked for them and I, I don't think that's the fault of teachers I really don't I think teachers have gone above and beyond during this pandemic you know and and done you know really risen to the challenge I can tell you feel very passionately about that at the end of the day we live in a physical world don't we so to not want to explore that in a physical sense would be a very strange thing I have to say that uh, talking to you has opened up so much wonder and marvel for me today. I've absolutely loved it. (laughs) And, you know, thank you for joining me in the Reading Corner, Alon. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really lovely to talk to someone who who really gets what the books are about. I'm I'm so pleased to have, have chatted to you about all this. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.